coming straight from the cockpit. It's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Ready, set, go. All right, back in the can for another edition of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void. And we're going to aim kind of towards safety. Uh, I want to hit on a lot this time around because I know that people are back jumping and doing it sporadically. And uh, uh, when you're only kind of current is when you're most likely to not do things right. So uh, uh, with that in mind, who the fuck are you and what do you do? Hey, Dean. My name is Tom Noonan, and I am the UPT Tandem Program Director. I've been doing that for, I guess I'm ending my eighth year. Um, This will be the end of my eighth year here, moving forward into nine. And I've been essentially working in the skydiving industry since 2006, since Ted Strong invited me down to Florida to run his tandem program back in August of 2006. Nice. Mr. Tom Noonan joining us again. That's uh, it's awesome. I've, I've been actually thinking quite a bit about you for a number of reasons. Uh, just like in the intro, I wanted to talk quite a bit about safety, uh, but you were doing a bunch of really cool things to help uh, support people all around the planet during these crazy times, one of which I was lucky enough to get in on, and that was the... Uh, Um, the Everest jackets that turned into such an amazing project Uh, to tell the story completely. I would have to go back about two years ago. I was actually walking through Kathmandu looking for stone carvings. There's so much art in Mm. Kathmandu and in Nepal and so many uh, artists out there that you meet them every time you, you walk through the villages and through the towns and I met this stone carver named Amrit, and he had all these beautiful Om Mani Peme home uh, stone carvings that he was selling in his shop with his family. And it was all being done freehand right there in front of us. Oh, wow. You know, and I thought, wow, you know, I'm, he could do this with anything. And so I, I purchased a few of the pieces and we started talking. And I asked him if he could do something with logos that I had with me, specifically at the time, the three ring logo mm. and the, the Vigil logo. Those are um, I, obviously I work for Bill and UPT and I'm sponsored by Vigil. And I thought, how great would this be for me to bring home stone carvings of an old Mani Pame home mantra um, hugging or embracing the UPT three ring logo or sure. the Vigil logo? So I talked to Amrit about this and I sent him on Facebook the logos that I had on Facebook Messenger. I went up into the mountain. I came back down about 10, 12 days later and sure enough, he had made these absolutely beautiful and brilliant uh, stone carvings, which I I got one for Bill, got one for Mark Prokos, for Candy over at um, at Vigil, got one for myself, for my office and I came home with these fantastic uh, one-off gifts that no one else in the world has, right? So I thought this was an amazing project. Fast forward two years later, just about a month ago, I got a text message from Amrit. And we stay in touch on Facebook every now and again. How are you doing? How are you? Things are well. Well, he was giving me an update on the COVID situation in Nepal and Kathmandu. And the easiest way or the simplest way to explain it is up in the mountain, there is no COVID anymore. They managed to, um, they stopped all flights. So the, the villagers that live up in the mountains are actually doing quite well. They mm. farm for themselves. They have hydroelectric uh, electricity. So in the absence of tourism, they're basically just getting back to their roots. Uh, I have friends up in the mountains that send me messages on Facebook and videos of the families out in the streets or in the, the, the walkways, you know, dancing and singing and having all mm. kinds of celebrations. It's quite beautiful. And similarly, in the villages that are far, <coughs> excuse me, the villages far outside of the, the, the large cities, very similar scenarios. 
they're able to self-sustain for themselves and they're just waiting for the COVID crisis to end. Whereas in the cities, specifically in Kathmandu, um, which is driven almost entirely on tourism dollars mm. in many locations, that there's a lot of uh, problems there, a lot of um, the same things we see here, unemployment, lack of resources. And so I was chatting with Amrit about this uh, on Facebook, and he just casually said, you know, if there's anything you can do to help in terms of, you know, we maybe take some orders of, of stone carvings to help him get through this process. I thought, wow, you know what? I can do one better than that. I'm just going to, I'm so blessed to be working right now. I'm going to get together with all my friends of Nepal. Hmm. I said, people that I've taken out to Everest in the, over the last, you know, five, 10 years, emailed 20 people, um, basically asked for $50 per person. Just said, hey, if you guys can give me $50, I'm going to send all this money to, um, to Nepal, I ended up raising over $3,000 in about eight hours, which was <laughs> extraordinary. My friends just jumped at this opportunity. So I've been able to send Amrit and other friends out there that are in the city, just send them hundreds and hundreds of dollars uh, just as a surprise. Sure. And when you're looking at an environment where the average annual income is $800 a year or $900 a year in the city, based on how that economy works, we're able to send our friends over there three, four, and in some cases, six months worth of revenue of income Which is amazing. to help get them through the process. So that was just, um, that was probably, or I'd say absolutely the greatest thing I've done with my time uh, since the COVID uh, shutdown has occurred. I've managed to inspire my other friends to do something extraordinary with me. And as we're doing this, I don't know if this will make sense. This is how my brain works. <laughs> that was so successful so quickly. I thought, what else can I do? Sure. What's next? Um, and then I thought about my friend Rajan, who makes these Everest jackets for us. And I know that he's a, a self-made businessman. He's got a family. He operates out of a home a factory, and he's got anywhere from four to 10 employees, depending upon you know, how busy he is, that he also supports. Mm. And I know they're not doing much business right now because the tourism industry and the climbing seasons have been canceled. So I thought, you know what, that ever skydive jacket, every time I come home with one, people always ask me about them and want to talk about them. And, and I'll sell them to people just as random, hey, I've got four or five or six of them if you want one give me a hundred dollars for it. And I'll send that hundred dollars back over to Nepal, you know, sure. just that kind of thing. So I thought, well, first I'm looking at my closet and my gear, my gear closet at work. And I had four jackets and I thought I'm going to sell these. So I put them on Facebook, a hundred dollars each, and they were sold in 45 minutes. <laughs> so I raised $400 more, which again is like three or four months salary for someone out there. Fantastic. So sure. I raised that. And then I thought I can do more. What's next. And so then I contacted Rajan and I said, look, I got such a positive response off of these jackets that let's put an order in. I'm going to expect to get 10. I'm going to cap it at 20 just from a practicality perspective because they all have to come to me. I then have to ship them out to people around the world. Let's just limit it to 20. and We'll be lucky if we get 10. And he hmm. says, okay, great. Let's do this. Well, I think I ended the order at 45. <laughs> there was so much positive response in this that we've, uh, I, I couldn't say no, because obviously the whole purpose of this is to generate um, revenue and income for my friends overseas. Sure. That of course I took every order in that I could and we raised so much money. If you think about 4,500 times approximately $100 per jacket, uh, we raised another $4,500, not only just in revenue for him and his company, but it's also employing his co his workers. So sure. the exponential effect of that. And then 
I'd say if I added up everything, it's probably close to seven or eight thousand dollars that we've been able to um, been able to raise through all of these little projects. And so now uh, I've created another. Uh, so that group that you're talking about, I created a, a Facebook page called Everest Skydive Jacket Club or something like that, right. where everybody that ordered a jacket can actually follow the uh, production process, meet Raja and meet the people that he um, employs and see their jackets being made. So I did a, a similar thing with Amrit and his stone carvings, which I'm going to uh, release in the next week or so. And then my other friend Shanta, who sells mandalas, this, uh, those uh, small paintings of all of the different um, Buddhist scenes and, and cultural histories, we're going to do another one for him for that. So basically, I'm trying to generate revenue for my friends out there in this time of need, effectively, while their tourism industry is shut down. And it, the response I've gotten from my friends from around the world has just been overwhelming. Um, it's humbling to think that I could have such a impact on these people sure. overseas, the ones that I'm helping. And it's not me. It's it's literally an army of friends that have all sure. kind of come together and have helped me facilitate this. And I, I don't know if you're a fan of Jerry Maguire, but uh, sure. I have always referred to these friends of mine as my ambassadors of Quan <laughs> because they are without a doubt, this, the most uh, gracious, always ready to help friends that I've ever known in my life. And, it, and more and more of them um, come out of the woodwork, so to speak, you know, each time I do this. So it's this growing army of ambassadors of Quan that are helping in our own little way to make the world a better place, at least in Nepal at this point. Sure. Well, and, and it shed, couldn't shed some light. It really couldn't come at a better time for Nepal. It was, it's so uh, sadly ironic. Um, when I was there last year and, and did the Everest hike and everything, when I was getting my permits to do the hike, they were asking, hey, are you going to come back next year? It's the big tourism year for Nepal. We're really pushing to have, I don't know how many millions of people that they were shooting for, really, really wanting to up their tourism game because it is so vital there. Uh, and yes. of course, I was like, well, yes, I absolutely want to come back. And of course, I haven't even gone up the mountain yet but i'm i'm hemming and hawing going well i gotta see if i survive this one and then i, right. I was absolutely <laughs> planning on going back and of course then this hits and all i can think is oh jesus i mean this was this was their big year to push really hard and for it to just yep. all go away in a blink it has to be horrible for so many people so to be able to do something like this especially when i saw the jacket because obviously now i've got a real soft spot for nepal and the himalayas and especially yep. everest and especially skydive everest because i was lucky enough to see it all firsthand and be there when the jumps were yep. being made and um so as soon as i saw that i'm like i need a fucking jacket <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's it. It's I need a jacket no matter what. I was gonna beg because you had said I'm only gonna allow so many, and I saw that yep. the post was a day or two old, and I'm like, shit, I'm not gonna get in it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, well, I, I was so overwhelmed by the uh, the response from friends, and uh, not just the response, but many of them were even sending in additional funds on top of their jacket fee, saying here take this extra money and, and send it over there. You know, so people were making essentially donations on top of their jacket orders, which again, it just, the, the whole thing just mushroomed and it was beautiful to see all these people jump on board on this great, great project. Yes. And, uh, and to be able to see them being built and to see the people that are, whose lives are being affected by it. 
through this Facebook group. I just think it's an extraordinary uh, opportunity for all of us to basically make the world a little smaller. Yeah, which is always nice, especially when you're talking about people that are as genuine and humble as the Nepalese were. When I was there, I, I, I didn't meet one person there that couldn't afford at least a smile for you, which was amazing. Exactly. You know, even yep. the guys that are carrying like three of me up the mountain, uh, you'd say namaste and they'd manage to bark it back, even though they've got 500 pounds of shit on their backs, you know, just amazing yep. people. And their cultural uh, spirit is something that I've always found uh, inspiring. Back when there was the unfortunate earthquake a few years ago, mm. and obviously everything associated with the earthquake, people lost loved ones, people lost homes, lost businesses. I stayed in touch with um, those that I w were friends with out there, and every one of them had the same mindset, the same philosophy, if you will, is that today we're going to make the best of today. Sure. If we're living in the street under a tarp for a month while we're waiting for our structure to be rebuilt, the positive is that we're together, you know, and we'll make the best of that moment. We'll make the best of that situation. So whether it's a negative, like the when the earthquake occurred or most recently with the COVID, despite whatever hardships that my friends and coworkers out there are experiencing, every one of them has the same philosophical mindset of, we're just going to be grateful for today. Sure. Let's just get through today, be grateful for it, and tomorrow will provide for us. And I really do uh, find inspiration in that. Oh, yeah. Boy, it'd be nice if uh, we could spread it around the rest of the ball. <laughs> get, yep. the, get the rest of the planet thinking that way. But, hey, I, baby steps, I guess, right? Yeah, little by little. But that's part of the whole uh, experience. One of the things that I'm most grateful for with Everest Skydive in general is that it's an international event. We've got international staff members, international guests that join us. And those extraordinary human beings that live in Nepal have exposed the world to a better way of thinking in one way or another. Everybody has been inspired in their own capacity. And I've got friends in Australia who are inspired in one way by the people they met and people they work with, others in the UK, others in Europe. So my one little contribution here has simply been to connect all these extraordinary people from different parts of the world. And then that infectious enthusiasm that they learn and that they live with in Nepal, they take home with them. Sure. And I've seen that manifestation of change or adaptation, however you want to frame it, of people's perspectives have been completely uh, opened up when they go home to their home life and, to, and bring back the things that they've learned from that culture. I think that's the most valuable uh, commodity that we offer is the opportunity to experience some form of personal enlightenment. Sure. And it, it affects everyone differently, but I think everyone that's gone out there has had that personal enlightenment and it's affected them in different positive ways. So we're really just spreading positivity based on the people that we are blessed to be able to, to work with and communicate with and be call friends uh, in Nepal sure. over the years. Well, when I came back from it, I definitely uh, came back with a different perspective. And granted, in my own crude fashion, my mentality was try and be less of a dick. <laughs> you know, and, and it, it really has rubbed off. I mean, I've got my pictures on the wall and I've, I've uh, you know, got my uh, my memorabilia and I have the necklace that was blessed uh, uh, for the ceremony for Skydive Everest and all this stuff. And every time I see it yep. and think about it, my thought is just be nicer. Just be a little bit nicer because these people are, are yep. living with one one thousandth of what you have on a daily basis. And they're generally happier than a lot of people I know. So it's really nice to see. And it's nice to remember. Yeah. Yeah, just be nice. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Now, on to a, a not quite as nice subject, um, the battle back and forth between nationals. I wanted to get your take on that. What do you think of it? Well, I've been following a lot of the feeds and a lot of the comments online, and it's, I, I think, one of those rare situations where I think everyone's right. Um, I look at opinions that depending upon how they're they're looked at under what context they're given i think you can have two pose two opposing opinions that are both valid and both right under their own um their own lens so mm-hmm. to speak uh primarily i i would start with the idea that i'm i'm supportive of the cancellation of nationals mm-hmm. simply for the fact that on a personal level seeing the idea of skydivers traveling from all over the country congregating in one location for a period of time to me that looks like a higher than acceptable risk of exposure to spreading covid you know going back to their home home locations and we're already seeing that on a much smaller basis in some drop zones Mm. so if it can happen on a single drop zone despite temperature checks despite um testing and all the social distancing protocols that are in place. And let's be fair, honesty to me is the best policy. We have social distancing protocols in place in most drop zones, but we're skydivers and skydivers tend not to follow social distancing protocols. (laughs) They'll still do it in the morning. And then by the afternoon, you'll see, you know, people not wearing their masks and it's not a, a good thing or a bad thing. I say it without emotion or opinion of emotion, but my own personal observations is seeing people not social distancing, not wearing their masks. And, Thankfully, it's been a low incident rate of exposure on singular drop zones. But when you take all of those drop zones and put them together, then you have a much higher potential of creating, I don't want to use the term, spike in the, in the, um, spike in sure. the curve, sure. <laughs> just like they say in the news. Yeah. And to me, that makes the most sense, the health of the community, the health of our, um, of our friends in the sport. Well, that sure. being said, I also appreciate the competitive nature and of our teams and of competitors in the sport or really in any sport that are willing to risk that to compete and to win. So I have a tremendous amount of respect for competitors that want to still push through this, still go on and compete with one another. And ultimately I think that with USPA's, uh, my understanding, USPA is only doing their due diligence right now. I think I read that verbatim online mm-hmm. um, that right now <clears throat> they're simply exploring all their options without reservation of a decision and that they haven't made any decisions. They're not leaning one way or the other. They're simply trying to look at all possible outcomes of this. And having been on the board for, I want to say seven or eight years, I know that from the general membership perspective, from time to time, we, we develop an idea that, well, the board's there for themselves or the board's not representative of the, um, of the general population or they're not listening to us. I think that happens in every political arena. I think that happens in every um, every board of directorship, if you will, in situations like this across other sports. But what I can say from my first person experience is that everyone, especially the competition committee, everyone in the board process truly is committed to the membership and the membership's uh, best interest. Hmm. 
they are willing to listen to everyone. And I think sometimes when we present good arguments and we're, we're not immediately accepted of them, we kind of step back and go, well, I, I gave you a good argument. Why are you not acting on it? Right. And it really does take a, a leader, a strong person to say, that was a great argument or it was a great opinion. But before we act on it, we're going to step back and look at other perspectives and look at other uh, possible outcomes before making that final decision that's going to affect everyone. Sure. So all that being said, I think that's where I'm at with this. I would end by saying I absolutely commend uh, Skydive City, uh, Susan Stark, Joni, uh, Cam, the entire group there for making the decision they made to realize that it wasn't in their best interest of the safety of the community sure. for them to hold it at this point. And I'm friends with Cam, I'm friends with Susan, and this is they're two hours away from me here in Florida. I am so proud of them for making that decision. I think it was the right decision, and I'm supportive of them 100% in doing so. Well, and what a tough decision to make. I mean, all the planning and the effort that goes into getting ready for something like the Nationals and to have to, at such a late date, go, you know, we just can't do this. That's such a huge right. loss. You know, and I think I'm a bit like you. I my I am not at all opposed to the Nationals not going on, only because I think there's just too many possibilities. Um, I, I made a comment on a post of uh, one of the competitors who's very much against the competition going forward, and there was an argument for the competition, that being that skydivers are great at, at risk management and this type of stuff. And, and my response to him was, yes, skydivers are amazing at that, but at some point there also comes a time when you just stand down from the load because there's too many variables, uh, just too many things. Agreed. You know, and when it's absolutely, you know, people from so many different drop zones, and then the traveling. I mean, I think the traveling would be even more risky because now you're, you know, coming into contact with God knows how many people that may or may not be safe most of the time. There's just too many ifs for right now, and with the craziness that's going on in the states, I just, you know, I mean, there'll be another competition, in my opinion. Absolutely. You know, um, it's also that, that kind of ties in to be, being safe with the nationals also ties into the big point that I wanted to, to speak to you about today. And that's safety. Uh, I know that with drop zones reopening, um, I just saw a post not that long ago from USPA members talking about the rash of incidents that have been happening, um, primarily swooping accidents um, from people that are, are uh, you know, right back at it and pushing hard that, that haven't been uncurrent in years. And I really kind of want to get your take on what people need to be doing now as, as things are slowly opening up to, you know, kind of make sure that they're not, you know, flying with their heads up their asses. I'm happy to give my thoughts on that. I got my A license August of 2000, I think it was. Mm. And this is so this is the first time in 20 years that I actually went on current. I've jumped all year, every year for the last 20 years. And with the COVID stand down, I actually went on current on um, this year. Mm. And it was by choice. And I say that as a risk mitigation uh, comment, as we talked about that. You were mentioned earlier about risk mitigation and skydivers. I had the opportunity to stay current as the drop zone was flying loads. I just wasn't willing to take that risk. Mm. I wasn't willing to, especially early on, not knowing what the transmission rate was going to look like in the beginning, what our effective exposure to it was going to be. So I went the longest without skydiving in my career during the shutdown as well. Eventually I did get back and get recurrent and I started jumping again, um, but strictly on an absolute need basis for 
product testing courses I was running, things like that. But even in that capacity, I still wasn't 100% comfortable with my decision in terms of exposure to potential COVID. I was just hyper vigilant in, I mean, I was getting on the airplane with my, uh, my visor down on my uh, G3. Mm. I didn't want the visor even open in the aircraft thinking I'm imagining all these germs bouncing sure. around inside the plane. Um, so that being said, when it comes to canopy flight, I don't think that it is unexpected that when we take a break and then immediately jump back into high performance canopy flight, that there's going to be a, um, a curve of experience that's going to have to be rebuilt back up again in order to return to what would be considered a relatively safe environment. Now, I don't know what happened with these specific incidents because I wasn't involved in any of the investigations. Mm. But what I look at in something like this is that most people don't have access to a range of parachutes. Mm. They don't have access to, say, a Peregrine 68 a uh, Valkyrie 92, a Leo 103, a Crossfire 3120, a Sabre 3170. They don't have access to a, a large progression of parachutes to basically step them back down again sure. to their high-performance parachutes. It's possible, and it would seem almost logical, that one of the reasons why we're seeing incidents on high-performance parachutes is that people aren't either able or capable or maybe thinking about the possibility of going back onto, say, a student canopy, you know, and sure. flying a couple of jumps on a Sabre 2 190, a 120, you know, getting themselves stair-stepped back down into that high performance range. It might simply be that we've been locked down for so long, the green light is on, no pun intended, the green light <laughs> is on, and we run to the drop zone with our rig, we throw it on our back, and we look at our past experiences, our past levels of skill and successes and think, well, I'll be fine. I'll be all right. Sure. You know, let me just get up there, get, get my knees in the breeze. And this is the only parachute I've flown for the last 2000 jumps. I'll be fine with it. But those subtle, um, skill set deteriorations, whether it's an exact altitude reference that you were used to, whether it's, um, how long or how deep you hold your turn, those sorts of things are diminished skills you know mm. skill set is diminished in any capacity you know I, I use my rubik's cube as an example when covid first started i could solve my rubik's cube in two minutes right i was doing it every day all day today i picked it up this morning i try to do it once a day it's like three or four minutes for me to solve the rubik's cube mm -hmm. i have the same skill set but it's been dramatically diminished because i haven't done it as often over the last four months sure and i think parachute skill sets are no different i think that or skydiving really any skill set is no different the less we do it well, we still know how to do it. It's not something that we do well uh, right off the, right out the gate for most of us. And for anyone that's ever driven a car with the steering wheel on the opposite side of what they're used to, hmm. that's another great analogy for it. Meaning like when I go to New Zealand or to Australia, the first day or two I'm back there driving, I'm like a student driver. I am sure. absolutely slow, deliberate. Within three days, I'm back into a flow state as though I've been driving this way my whole life. But if I tried to drive the way I drive on day three, as I drive on day one, when I pick the car from the rental car agency, I'm going to hit a curb. I'm going to you know, be less safe than I would be after having slowly got myself back up to speed on that skill set. Sure. And I think that's probably the causality of a lot of these incidents that we're seeing today is just the the recognition or maybe lack of recognition that our skill sets are perishable and we can't go from 
complete rest to jumping back into a competitive or high performance environment without allowing for a transition. And everyone's transition timeframe is going to be different. You know, you take your top swoop competitors in the world that they eat, sleep and drink canopy piloting. They might have a shorter progression back to that high level skill set, whereas the person that's a high performance canopy pilot, but it's simply a part of their their of their profile, it's not something that they're maybe not as dedicated to or live through every single day. It's like, this is what they live for. That person might have a, a longer gap or a longer transition back to that uh, arrival of crisp, uh, clean canopy flight. And then effectively knowing that and allowing for that, I think is really the, the key to safety when it comes to canopy progression. Sure. Recognizing well, I mean, that you're. I, I can say that because uh, I, I normally fly a Velo 96. But I've not been on it for months now, uh, and I'm hesitant. I mean, I, normally that canopy to me is fun, but I don't consider it holy shit. Um, but I also yep. don't fly super aggressively with it. I'm relatively mm-hmm. mellow. But that being said, I would not be comfortable after four months off, you know, going out and, and uh, uh, jumping that like I'd been on it yesterday. I would absolutely want to take a few jumps on something a little bit more casual. I, I couldn't agree more. And from my perspective, I remember I said earlier about, you know, not everybody has access to a tremendous amount of of parachute sizes and not that you need that to be safe either. I have two parachutes. I have a a Storm 135 and a Valkyrie 103. Mm. When I came back to currency, I immediately I wanted to fly the Valkyrie, but I grabbed the Storm because that was the more docile of the two parachutes. And that was the first canopy that I redeveloped my skill set on, that I polished my skills on. And I still haven't taken my Valkyrie out of the, the gear closet yet, simply because I haven't been in a position where I felt comfortable using it today. Sure. And when I take it out, I'm going to take it out and land it in the student area uninterrupted as many times as necessary. When I say student area, uh, skydive to land has a large area in the middle of the airport away from traffic. So mm. I'm going to land out there away from traffic. I don't want you thinking I'm cutting off students here, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I'm going to make dedicated jumps landing in the largest possible landing area without traffic by myself sure. to ensure that I've, I've honed that skill set. And if, and when I feel comfortable, I will then move it to the main landing area. Sure. And if I don't feel comfortable moving it to the main landing area, I'm certainly not going to feel comfortable initiating higher or bigger turns and everything I'm do is going to try to be slow and methodical. It doesn't mean I still am not capable of frapping myself in misjudging something and getting injured. That can happen to anyone. We're all human. We all have that ability to make mistakes, but I'm recognizing that especially today, given the the shutdown and and the skill deterioration that I've noticeably experienced in my skydiving, I'm taking it as slow as possible to bring myself back to that point. I'm 46. I can't afford to put any metal in my body right now. Right, and that's right. one of my, one of my greatest, uh, I think if I were to brag about anything in skydiving that I've accomplished 20 years in the sport, I can walk through a metal detector and not set it off. <laughs> that's good. That's good. And that, uh, the number of people that can say that, uh, gets a little bit smaller every year. <laughs> yeah, it's a smaller and smaller population yeah. every year. Well, I mean, it's, it, it makes perfect sense to take your time and get back into it, uh, in regard to canopies slowly. And if you have access to larger, more docile canopies to do that, I mean, the, the flight crews that I work with, um, we had all gone, you know, three and almost four months without flying an aircraft. 
Uh, and we did not just hop in the airplane and go start flying loads. Uh, every single one of us uh, got reacquainted with the aircraft. Every single one of us sat and did drills in the cockpit. Every single one of us went and flew around the patch on our own, being very methodical and mellow just to get back into that. Because you hop back yep. in the cockpit of a jump plane and you're looking around going, all right, where the fuck is that switch? And what do I do here? And that's obviously not the mindset that you want to be in when you're back to, you know, having jumpers on board and sure. it's game time, you know? So it's the yep. same thing with canopies. Uh, obviously it's just your ass on the, on the line. Although if you're a tandem instructor that's been down this entire time and having to get reacquainted, I think it's even more important that you take your time and get that skill set back. Cause it's not just you, it's you and somebody else. Um, have oh, you been sure. doing recurrency stuff for, for tandem guys while all of this is going on? So, our tandem recurrency has actually been really smooth. It's uh, a 90-day, 180-day, two-year recurrency cycle, meaning that if someone goes over 90 days, that's their first recurrency. Uh, over 180 days, it's a slightly more in engaged recurrency. And then over two years, that's essentially a retraining. So thankfully that the COVID reopenings, if we can call it that, most people only fell under the 90-day recurrency a, a few 180 days but both of those recurrencies are effectively self-supervised hmm. so we haven't really run into any issues where people have gone so long with tandem jumping that they haven't been able to get recurrent either on their own or in the highly unlikely scenario someone's gone an extended period of time that they have access to examiners to assist them in getting recurrent so we have seen a tremendous uh, volume of recurrencies come in as the world has started to open back up again. And thankfully, we haven't seen any structural, uh, operational hmm. problems with it. That's good. That's good. Um, I mean, it's yep. it's kind of making sure that all the bases are covered as things get going. I mean, obviously, nothing like this has ever happened before. Uh, so it's right. all, you know, very uncharted waters. But I think being as methodical as possible is the smartest thing. Uh, again, back to the same mentality of, of uh, um, the idea behind canceling nationals is let's just be smart. You know, we, we yep. already do silly stuff. Let's be really smart about that silly stuff. Now, that being said, I saw a post that you put out not that long ago, I think probably last week that gained a lot of traction that I want you to talk about, which is the AAD the discussion that you put out. I've been talking about AADs at uh, PIA seminars and some of the other symposiums that I go to in Australia and the UK probably the last four or five years. It's really been a, uh, a passion of mine to try to communicate to people more and more about their automatic activation devices. And the reason for this is that and again, I'm not that old in the sport, but 20 years is a good amount of time. Sure. When I first started skydiving, I had a Cypress. I had a single unit Cypress. It was not multi-mode. And I was trained, set it and forget it. Because at the time, that was the mentality. It was the philosophy of the system of the unit. Turn it on at the beginning of the day. And then it will. it's, it's so functional, it'll even turn itself off at the end of the day. You don't even have to turn it off. Sure. And... That's how I operated. I was a belly flyer. Eventually, I started sky surfing uh, when I got enough jumps. But largely, my AD had no real effect on my well, the type of AD or this the mode it was in had no effect on how I was using it because at the time there really wasn't any parameters that could be exceeded by the type of skydiving we were doing. Sure. Fast forward twenty years later, we've had multiple 
AED activations during swoops, and more than mm-hmm. one of them have resulted in fatalities. Sure. And we've then progressed on and, and in student modes. We've had student activations. And we've also had wingsuit activations where they were in wingsuit mode and they were exceeded their their parameters because they were being used in other modes like swooping. A skydiver with a velocity has his AAD set in swoop mode and it activates. Sure. You know, these sorts of things are happening and they're happening again and again. So I had received a phone call from a friend of mine up north who was working with a newly licensed skydiver who had an AAD activation similar to what I just described, it was a Sabre 2190 um, spiraling into the pattern from about 1,200 feet hmm. and had an AD activation in student mode on one of these units. And so she had known, my friend had known that I was passionate about this and had been speaking to people about it. So she asked me if I would speak to the, uh, the, the skydiver, just to kind of help him understand what had happened. And we spoke for 20, 30 minutes. And he comp- once I explained the scenario and why it did what it did, and we looked through the manual and figured out what the activation altitude was. 1,100 feet was the student activation altitude. That it was a foregone conclusion that his purposeful acts, as I call them, his deliberate actions of initiating a steep toggle turn at 1,200 feet, the only logical outcome was for the AED to fire. Hmm. And I give him credit. He was open and honest with me. He said, you know, when I was trained, I was trained just to hit the buttons. And once it was on, it was on. There was really no register or understanding of what's the difference between expert mode or student mode. What's the difference in um, activation altitudes between brands, whether it's 1,100, 1,000, 900 feet, whatever it is. And so we started talking about all this. And I used what I've believed to be my greatest contribution to skydiving, not to pat myself on the shoulder, (laughs) but I think my greatest contribution to skydiving in the last 20 years is my analogy between AADs and coffee pots. <laughs> All right, let's And I explained to him, I said, your automatic activation device is just like your coffee pot. And if you don't drink coffee, it's just like your toaster, because everybody eats toast. Your coffee pot's primary job is to make coffee. That's what we buy it for. It's what we use it for. And your AAD, the reason we spend the money on them, the reason we install them, its primary job is to save our life if we are unable to do so. And people can argue about whether or not AADs, they're only designed to initiate a reserve deployment. Everything else has to happen in sequence for you to survive. But the statistics show that it works in that capacity, that a properly um, installed, properly packed AAD and reserve combination, more often than not, in the 99 percentile, will save your life if it activates. And that's our expectation, that if we're knocked unconscious, it will save our life. It will activate when we are unable to do so. That's making coffee. Everybody knows that. But most people aren't aware of the second job of your coffee pot and the second job of your AED. And that second job for your coffee pot is to not burn the house down when it's not making coffee. <laughs> right. Right? Turn itself off. Do not activate when I don't need you to. And the AED's second job, which is equally important, is not to activate when we don't want it to. And we all focus on the first job, the activation if we're unconscious. But we rarely focus on or acknowledge today that that second that second scenario, burning the house down, as I call it, we as skydivers are absolutely capable of putting every AED on the market into a configuration that it will burn the house down, mm. that it will activate when it's not supposed to. With one exception, the swoop mode, when used in conjunction and when used correctly in that capacity, won't activate on a high speed canopy descent, which is really 
shutting off the, the coffee, pulling the plug out of the, the wall socket on the coffee pot, you know, so that sure. it can't turn on or turn off, which is really the only logical solution when you have canopies descending at 100 miles an hour, you know, at those speeds sure. and those altitudes. So we talked about that analogy and he understood it. And we realized that if we looked at the manual and we did, I did after the fact, the manual said 1100 foot uh, activation altitude in student mode. And right after it, it said, warning, you can achieve this in a fully functioning parachute. Mm. So for a skydiver to make a deliberate decision to initiate a high speed revolution turn just above their AD activating altitude. It's, it's not a decision with a high likelihood of a successful outcome yet. It was made anyway. And the reason it was made was nothing more than a simple lack of, of understanding of how the system worked, sure. what the AD was designed to do for him at that point in time. And we still see swoop activations. We still see now wingsuit activations and other modes. And it just got me thinking that this, uh, skydiver benefited so greatly from this conversation. I wondered how many other people out there may or may not have the same, call it a gap in understanding, a, mm. a, a gap of knowledge that I could help motivate, inspire, direct towards this um, this information. So that's where that uh, that article that I posted, that blog post on Facebook came from. And it was just a brain dump. Just I put everything in the conversation that I had with him down on paper or down on, on text and my response to that has been absolutely phenomenal. I'm getting messages from skydivers around the world saying that it was shared to them. They didn't understand what their AED function was. They read their manual. They now know what altitudes not to initiate turns at, and they have a better understanding of how their AEDs work. And as I ended that article with, if, if only one person reads this and realizes that, hey, I need to watch my multi-mode AAD count all the way down to pro mode or just to extreme mode to know what mode it is in to prevent someone from having an AAD fire on a swoop. Canopies like the Valkyrie and the Leia, I call them hyper-class canopies. I just mm. kind of made that up, but they're hyper-class. And the reason they're hyper-class is they're not pro. They're not your uh, Peregrines or your Petras, but they're pretty darn close to it. And if we step back to the VXs and the velocities, you could get a velocity or a VX to fire in swoop mode. I'm sorry, fire in pro mode, but you sure. had to be perfect. You had to have the perfect power band, the perfect initiation. You had to let that canopy build up all the speed it wanted and it needed. And if you were a good enough canopy pilot, you could have an AD activation on your velocities, your JVXs, all those um, prior generation cross brace canopies. Sure. Today, however, and I think this is something lost in translation in the, the community, is that the Leia's and the Valkyries are so close to pro mode, pro caliber wings, you don't have to be perfect in your turn and your execution and your skill set to activate at those pro and expert speeds. Hmm. Because we're seeing more and more of that, that these Valkyries and these Leias are so efficient and such great wings that not so great canopy pilots, and by that I just mean people that are not pros, people that are not CP trainers, CP um, professionals, if you will, that the everyday skydiver, myself included, who's admittedly not a high-performance canopy pilot at the CP realm and probably will never be, hmm. but I can initiate an activation on my Valkyrie if I jump one small enough, 
sure. if I have a decent of enough turn. So understanding that these hyper-class canopies are so close to the firing parameters on every single descent that we as skydivers, I also said in my article, I'm the sole stakeholder in my own safety when I put that parachute on my back. Sure. If I jump the difference between a 103 and an 84, and that difference is the speed differential to activate my AD and expert or pro mode, and I don't know that, and I'm not aware of that information, that's on me and no one else. Sure. Um, and that's why we see people jump with GPSs like Flytech to see what are their descent speeds? What are they? Are they coming close? Are they near it? And ultimately, why people, when they're jumping these hyper-class canopies, and even with the, the old-school velocities and, and VXs, should be jumping them in swoop mode as opposed to pro mode. Because the next time we lose a skydiver on a swoop activation, it's going to anger, obviously, the community because it's going to be perceived as though the unit performed incorrectly. Right. But the unit's only a calculator. It's calculating airspeed changes or air sure. pressure changes. And it's calculating that into airspeed and descent rates. And we as a community are capable more than ever today of putting ourselves and our, our parachute systems in parameters above and in excess of those firing uh, parameters. And it's our job not to do that. If sure. we're going to use an AED, we have to, you know what your stall speeds are in your aircraft. And if you fly that plane into a stall, it's not the plane's fault that fell out of the sky. Right. It's your fault for not giving it enough airspeed to stay aloft. I wonder how, you know, many, and, uh, how many horrified gasps there would be from jumpers around if they had an AAD that told them how close they were to a Cypress fire or a vigil fire. Can you imagine? You land and it tells you uh, four out of the eight jumps you did, you almost fired your uh, AAD. <laughs> You'd shit yourself. It'd be hundreds. I would assume hundreds of skydivers, if not thousands, because we oh, don't yeah. know unless we use GPS and even the GPS isn't perfect. It's a, it's a good estimate, but it's not exact. You right. know, it's not 100% infallible. So just understanding what the AAD is designed to do. And really, I think I'll close this out with the thing that I took away from this, which I hope is also something that we look at as a community, is that the transition of ownership of responsibility. When I'm an AFF student, if you're my AFF instructor, you're probably turning my AD on the first time for me and showing me how it's done. And the second time I do it, I'm turning it on under your supervision. You know, I'm, I'm hitting the button four times. And that's about all I'm, I'm going to be taught about the AD as an AFF student, because it's really not a need to know to save my life. Sure. I need to know it's on. I don't need to know what the, what the parameters are when you're trying to put other more important pieces of information in my head, like stable body position exit sequence, canopy flight, you know, things like that. But as we progress as skydivers into coach students and onto A-licensed jumpers, that transition of responsibility of gear knowledge has to occur. And it does, but it doesn't occur in a consistent manner. Hmm. You can have two drop zones teaching the same program, but one is going to have a higher intuitive understanding of gear, let's say, because maybe you have a master rigger or a sponsored athlete that works for, um, that's representing an AD manufacturer or a harness container manufacturer. So they might get a higher level of exposure to the gear side of it than someone who's at a drop zone that doesn't have that. Sure. So I think recognizing that just because we have a licenses, we don't all have the same relative understanding of equipment sure. because we haven't all learned in the same environments. And that's the, that's the highlight that I was hoping to get with this. And I think I did, like I said, based on the responses back, um, I'm so glad that I did that. It's, 
been one of the most productive things I've done with my COVID time for sure. I'm getting, uh, I think it's been shared 50 plus times and across different uh, platforms and I'm getting personal feedback from people thanking me for taking the time to do it sure. and that they've, it's now made them safer. Well, so you know, I mean, I this, can't is, be any happier. this is one of the, the winning scenarios for social media uh, is that it spreads words like this. Cause I mean, let's face it, yeah. modern day skydiving, there's a lot of really big organizations out there that do an amazing job of teaching their students and a lot of amazing canopy courses that, uh, you know, it's one group on multiple drop zones and so many huge resources for learning, but there's also still a lot of mom and pop operations where, uh, and even in the big operations, uh, things slip through the cracks uh, or instructors um, gloss over one area that they don't think is quite as important and they come back to it later. But something like this gets out there to people that maybe just didn't take the time to learn themselves. They were never introduced to this kind of stuff. Just like you and I, they got the, you push it four times, wait until it counts to zero and go jump. Uh, because I was the set it and forget it generation as well. Um, you know, I mean, I started jumping just about the time, um, the Cypress was becoming the, you have to have this thing. Um, you know, before then it was the, the FXCs or I don't even remember if that's the name of them, the bricks that would be strapped to your hip and stuff like that. Yep. You know, um, so yeah. it, it went from a, yeah, this might work to a, you need to have this, but the training wasn't necessarily there. So stuff like this, especially being put out in these platforms and shared when we're all sitting on the couch, wondering what the hell to do next is, is great. Especially now that we're starting to jump again. And that to me has been the, the biggest fear factor, I guess you could call it is that when we started getting the, when the world started opening back up again, uh, I tend to, to to think in, I don't want to say negative terms, but I just, I was so worried that this kind of information was not going to be out there. And not just with AEDs, but even with canopy flying, you know, separating from uh, CP for a moment, just in general, making sure we have the right parachute over our head sure. at this point in our life, meaning coming out of COVID is as critical as it's ever been. And what I mean by that is that most skydivers, myself included, we tend to plan for when things go right. Mm. We want the best parachute, especially if we're going to spend thousands of dollars on them, the best parachute for the maximum amount of fun, maximum amount of, of enjoyment and utilization. And we tend not to think about maximum ability to be able to sink it into someone's backyard with a chain link fence, you know, or avoid a tree, avoid a building, that sort of stuff. If I have to land this on the side of a highway, Am I able to sink it in and not drift into the road as I'm, you know, swooping across the the shoulder of the road? And today, more than ever, because we're a little rusty, because we're a little bit uh, uncurrent, people are getting out late. Their their spotting is a little rusty, so they're not landing back on the drop zone as as with the same consistencies. They're not landing in clean airspace with the same consistencies as they did four or five months ago. And so we have canopy conflicts. We have low turns to the ground. We have uh, injuries of landing off the airports. And I keep going back to the idea that every skydiver, if anyone's still listening to this, if we've, if we've <laughs> held your, your, if, if we have held your attention this long, ask yourself two questions. One, can I land my main parachute off the airport safely? And if the answer is yes, great. But if the answer is no, stop now, do not pass uh, go. Don't go straight to your canopy coach and get coaching to be able to feel confident and show the skill set 
to be able to land your main canopy off the airport because you will have to do this at some point in your career. And at this point, you're more likely to have to do it today than you were a year ago because sure. people are on current. Even those jump pilots are on current with their GPS spots. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? No, everybody's, everybody's so, a little rusty. Yep. And the second question, you're more likely to land off with your reserve than your main simply mm. because you, one of the reasons we land off is our main parachutes malfunction. We cut away. Our reserve opens low, lower. And we now don't have the same glide rate to get back to the airport sure. because we're, we're further off. So the next question, can you land your reserve in someone's backyard? And if you can't answer that confidently with the affirmative, you are more likely to be setting off metal detectors at TSA checkpoints in your future sure. than those that can say confidently that they can land their reserves sure. off the airport in tight spots. And so recognizing we do or do not have the right tools in our tool shed, the right main for not just when things go right, but when things go wrong, and also the right reserve for not just when things go right, landing on the airport into uh, clean air, but landing off the airport in someone's backyard. Recognizing those now while we're on the ground, sitting around talking at the drop zone, talking to each other at the bonfire, and either getting coaching on both of them, because PD and Icarus and New Zealand, they'll send out demo reserves if you ask for them, I believe. Sure. And getting under that canopy and practicing it. And if you do find out that maybe you're jumping the wrong parachutes for your safety, maybe swapping to a higher size or a different model might be the difference between walking away embarrassed from a landing versus not walking away because you broke your ankle because you didn't have the right wing over your head or the right experience to fly that wing over your head. Sure. And I practice what I preach. I was uh, jumping my Storm 135, and I had the opportunity to obviously jump my Valkyrie 103. I took the Storm, and on a tandem uh, evaluation jump, an examiner course I was running, we were the last ones out, and the green light was on. Got out long from uh, off the airport, and we were the, barely made it back to the airport, and the landing area was swamp, taxiway, uh, a little patch of smooth mode green grass, turbulent inducing uh, buildings, and all the all the things that you could put into an incident report. <laughs> right. If you were going to write an incident report ab ab about me getting injured on this landing, all these key components were there in the incident report. And like most skydivers, as I'm making my way back to the airport, I'm doing that calculation in my head. Am I going to make it? Am I going to make it? I'm trying to visualize my glide rate. And every second I say, am I going to make it? That voice in the back of my head is going, no. <laughs> and no keeps getting louder and louder. So as I'm making my way back to the airport, um, everything I overfly, I'm looking at it going, I can land there. I can't land there. don't want to land there. That's a swamp. And I'm identifying all the, the danger areas. And eventually I came in over, I made it over the fence, so to speak, onto the airport property. And it was uh, at that point, my decision was to stay where I was and sink in and land in this mode grass strip, basically the uh, object free area off the runway or land, try to make it over the, um, the swamp and around the, the a tree line that was potentially turbulent. And I remember looking up at my canopy saying to myself, this is why I talk about this stuff. <laughs> I've got the best parachute in the world over my head for this specific moment. Sure. Things are not what I planned them to be. I planned to I had planned to land in the student area with my tandems, which was you know 300 yards away, but instead I'm landing in a really tight, ugly spot, 
and I have a parachute that I can bring in in three-quarter breaks and sink it in. I'm in control of my, my flight path. And I was va- imagining my Valkyrie 103, if that was over my head at this currency level, mm. I probably would have been okay, but it would have been as much of my luck bucket than my skill bucket. Sure. Whereas this landing was all skill bucket. I made the deliberate decision to fly the more docile parachute, better for landing off, not even expecting to land off, just knowing that we were getting out last on this uh, this jump run, and everybody's a little uh, everybody's a little rusty this time of the year that we're all coming out of it. And I remember standing there all by myself, nice soft stand up landing with this parachute. I was so proud of my decision making process at sure. that moment that I'd had the foresight to say, you know what, I didn't fly the way I could, I flew the way I should. I didn't jump the maximum fun parachute that I could. I jumped the parachute that I should in this environment. Sure. Well, and, and that's, again, if I, that's the big thing, I mean, it really is. I mean, there's no, and I would imagine that most of the jumpers listening to this know the feeling of uh, getting saddled out under your canopy, stowing the slider, and taking a look. And the only thing that comes into your mind is fuck. <laughs> Yep. You know, and that's a it's a sinking feeling, especially when, uh, you know, I used to jump at cross keys quite a lot. And there's a couple of spots where if you're out, you're in for a, 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 a an interesting landing, to say the least. And, you know, you don't want to look up at a, a Velo 96 with a very small yard surrounded by very tall trees if you don't know how to fly yep. that parachute. Uh, you know, I was given the best advice ever very early in the sport in regard to canopies, and that is you fly the canopy that you've got until you can literally fly it in every single condition you might find yourself in. Be able to fly it yep. into the wind, crosswind, downwind, in tight areas, in big, wide open air. It, know that you can fly that parachute in every way possible before you even think about stepping down to that next parachute. And I took that advice to heart, and I still walk in a straight line. So it's worked. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's great. You know, there really is nothing worse than hanging under the uh, hanging in the harness and looking and going, oh, man. And, you know, trying to do that geometry on the on the fly, so to speak. Am I going to clear the trees? Am I going to make it back to the landing area? Are there going to be rotors if I get too close to these trees? It's just so many ifs, you know, so definitely uh, the way to do it is exactly what you're saying. Well, I've asked this question in front of a room of 200 people, and I've said, you know, there's no wrong answers when you're on the ground. You know, we're, we're having a conversation as friends here in these seminars, and I would encourage you to be honest with me. Be honest with yourselves. How many of you feel comfortable you can land your main parachute off the airport safely? And let's say about a third of the hands go up, say mm. 40 out of 200, 45 out of 200. And let's not, my math is terrible. That's 25%. Let's say about 60 out of 200. Sure. Okay, so next question. How many of you feel comfortable landing your reserve off without injury off your airport? And 10% of the hands go up. Mm. That means 90% of the people out there in this one example have reserves in their parachutes, uh, reserves packed as a parachute, but they're not confident they're able to land safely off the airport. Now, most of them will, thankfully. The statistics show that even if you lack confidence, most of the time – you're able to navigate yourself, you know, the survival instinct, you're able to navigate yourself to the ground safely in without having that confidence of knowledge or skill. But in that very room, there are people that I'm speaking to that are going to injure themselves unnecessarily when they land off. And 
now they've recognized that. Now they've recognized that they lack a skill set. And if they do land successfully, it's their luck bucket as much as their skill bucket, if not entirely luck, that they land uninjured. So to motivate people to get canopy coaching, I think after AEDs, that's my number two um, my number two focus in the world. Mm. It does, doesn't necessarily have to be one brand of it or one person. There's so many great canopy coaches and courses out there. Um, I tend to work with and see the flight one uh, canopy programs going on in Deland. So I'm a little bit biased towards that simply sure. because I, I see the work they do. So I always tell people, go get a flight one coach. And if not a flight one coach, get some other coach from another uh, canopy piloting organization. I know Greg Miller does great canopy piloting courses. Uh, Kurt and Jeannie Bartholomew also do great canopy courses. So getting the information ahead of time is so much better than realizing you don't have it at the moment you need it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. Well, I mean, and that's that's the whole thing about uh, um, trying to mitigate the the dangers that we put ourselves in, because there's not a mm-hmm. skydiver out there that won't admit that skydiving can be very risky. Uh, we are big at mitigating those risks and taking them down to a manageable level. All the way back to when we were talking about nationals, is it a manageable risk? And if, if the answer is I don't know, then to me, that means it's not a manageable risk. Uh, so it's exactly what you're talking about. Be smart. You know, make sure that you've got all the information you need and you're making a wise informed decision yep yeah well now um i i want uh, people to be able to get to the link uh, that uh, takes them to the aad blog that you put out so how do they find it and how do they keep track of uh, you and what you've got going on in future courses what uh, upt's got going on how are, how are they going to track you so I posted that uh, AAD article in United States Fun Jumpers Facebook group. It's also on my personal Facebook page. It's been shared, like I said, 30 or 40, I think even maybe up to 50 times by now. Uh, UPT is going to post it on their uh, Facebook page as well today, and I believe Vigil is going to do the same thing. Um, as a full disclosure, uh, I'm sponsored by Vigil. I've been working with them for over 10 years, uh, not just because it's, I think it's the best unit out there, but I also work directly above them in Deland, and I, I'm really, I'm really good friends. <laughs> right. I'm really good friends with uh, the owners and employees of Vigil America, uh, Candy Prokos and Jenny Bishop. They're really good friends of mine, and they've been hugely supportive of me. Uh, so, like I said, full disclosure: I am sponsored by Vigil, but the information in that article holds true for Cypress units, Vigils, M2s, anything else that's out there. Awesome. It's knowledge is power, and the knowledge is out there, um, and in that post on Facebook, I linked to the AAD manuals for uh, Vigil, Cypress, and Mars, or MM2. M2. I've, so the manuals, operating manuals, are in that link. Nice. Nice. Let's see here. Other than that, um, I'm still working with uh, my teammate, Paul Henry DeBar. Uh, he and I have been, PH, he and I have been putting together global skydiving expeditions, minus the global right now, because <laughs> right. there's no travel. <laughs> But 2021 should be a pretty extraordinary year for us. We have some great projects. I've never been the kind of person or personality that talks about something before it's been done. I always prefer to, you know, say, do something and then talk about it sure. and share it with the world. Uh, we will advertise the projects. So we're going to be inviting people to go along with us next year. we get these great projects um, coming up. But we are moving full steam ahead with that and uh, halo projects as well. Um, we're bringing halo events to local drop zones around the world. 
And uh, we have some pretty exciting news in the Halo world. I'll save that for our next conversation, sure. but we have some we have some pretty great uh, projects and even products uh, coming down the pipe in our sport Halo world. So despite the fact I haven't traveled in the last five months, uh, but keeping busy, I've actually been busier home now uh, than I ever have been before. And just like you were saying, when you moved in with uh, your girlfriend after four days for right. three months, um, Julie and I have been together almost eight years. And this is the longest I've been home in that eight-year period. It's usually I was home for two weeks, gone for a week, right. home for two weeks, gone for a week. And I think we probably had the same look at our eye day one, like, okay, here we are. We're locked in. Uh, <laughs> Let's yep. hope this goes well. Yep. And it's just been extraordinary. Uh, I've had such a great opportunity to uh, reconnect with her and just be a homebody and be living in paradise here in New Smyrna Beach, go to work every day and to land. Uh, we are essential employees, thankfully. So mm. we were able to stay employed during this, um, this pandemic or whatever you call it. Sure. So I got to see what my other life looks like, you know, what my life, once the travel ends, what it's going to look like right. being a nine to five back and forth to work. And I'm so glad to be home. I did uh, reconnect with my best friend over the last five months. We've had just a fantastic time uh, just, you know, playing board games and just making each other <laughs> laugh. It's kind of a contest who who can make the other one laugh more throughout the day, you know, and we just, we're having a blast. That's a good contest. Cause it's either that or it's who can stab who the most times uh, <laughs> when you're locked in together. Luckily, uh, both you and yours and me and mine have survived the lockdown. Uh, so I think we've, we've, uh, we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel and everybody's still smiling. So that's good. Yeah. The only complaint I have, and I'll, I'll probably get in the putting the doghouse or saying this the only complaint i have about being home like this is that i love mob movies i love action <laughs> adventure suspenseful um that kind of genre right and julie's julie's more of a fan of rom-coms so we have to kind of you know one night we're watching casino the next night we're watching uh something she wants to watch right. you know so i don't get i could be halfway through all of my um my crime movies through COVID, but I have to, you know, basically give and take, we have to watch a couple of her, her movies too. So I think that's the only downside to being home with my, uh, my teammate, my life partner here is that we just don't have the same interest in movies. We, we didn't find that out until we were home for five months together. Yeah. Fair enough though. But that actually is good. Cause uh, I'm a lot like you as well. I would burn through all my list of favorite movies and then some, I would have been done with them in the first two weeks of the lockdown. And if it weren't for the fact that she watches all the different stuff, that I don't watch, I would have just been sitting around going, well, shit, I guess I'm going to rewatch yeah. this, <laughs> you know, because it's over. Sure. Yeah. Well, now that I know that if that's the worst I have to complain about, that's, that's, I'm doing pretty good. And that's, that's not too bad at all. Now I was just going to say, now yeah. that I know that you're parked right above vigil, I'm going to hit you up to, uh, to get one of the vigil guys on the podcast and we can, uh, hear it from the horse's mouth. Oh, and I still need to thank you for putting me, uh, um, on the podcast with Bill because holy shit, was he fun. I listened to that. That was a, a, what a great all your all your podcasts have been great, but that one I listened to uh, attentively because I know how dynamic of a speaker he is, and his just his stories, his storytelling, oh. his cadence, how he speaks. He's just um, 
I could listen to that for hours and hours. I actually, I do listen to that from time yeah. to time, you know, for no, hours. It He's was, just such an extraordinary guy. It was wonderful. And the, the, the funny thing is I actually had to do it twice because he was on vacation both times. Yep. Um, and the, well, the first time he did it and the connection was horrible. So we got about halfway through the podcast and it's dawning on me that this, it, the quality is just not going to be good enough for me to put up. There's no way. Yep. But the stories he was telling, I was pissing my pants. I'm like, I can't believe he said that. It's holy shit <laughs> you know and so i thought when we did it the second time around he would be a little bit more tempered uh because you know how people are they'll go oh yeah maybe yep. i was a little too loose on that one not bill <laughs> <laughs> it was beautiful he was just throwing stuff out left and right and and of course for me and and all our generation of skydivers i mean that's that's uncle bill man my first jump yep. was staring at that beard and that uh, horrible wood paneling behind him watching that video and um you know it's and realizing just how sharp this guy is and how much he's contributed yep. to the sport and how stupid they were too they were crazy they, yep. they were absolutely out of their minds in the most wonderful way. So it was, again, I got to thank you for putting me uh, putting me in touch with him and, and getting that one set up because it was amazing. Well, that's what I do. I connect extraordinary people with each other. Yeah, man. It was... <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, hell, I'm going to end that on a high note. Tom, thank you once again so much for taking the time. Uh, I want to hear about all these next projects that are coming up as they start to come to fruition. Thank you, Dean. And if I could ask one thing of you um, as you publish this and or promote it. Sure. I'm just one voice with a very um, singular view of things because of what I do and where I, I, I work and how I see the world. I would encourage you to encourage your audience to make their voices heard. Sure. Everybody has ideas on safety and some people are going to be able to connect with others that I can't or haven't or be subject matter experts in areas I have no clue. Sure. And I love seeing people put stuff out like that, like PD's Tip Tuesday, things like that. Encourage your audience to make their voice heard for safety. I think that would be great for all of us. Absolutely. And um, I, I'm looking forward to reading and listening to other people's recommendations. I want to get better and safer too. And I certainly don't have all the answers. So if we could take this podcast and use it as a launching board for Post-COVID reintroduction into everyday skydiving, what else is out there that we need to remind ourselves about? And if we take that path, I think this time was extraordinarily well spent if somebody uh, takes the reins here and puts the next safety article, the next podcast out on safety. And um, we'll just keep doing that and making the community safer. Oh, man, I think that's a fantastic idea. And everybody, you just heard it. Tom's telling you, get that information out there. If you've got a unique take on a safety issue or you've got a question about safety and you want it you want answered, you need answers to these things, get it out there. The social media that we've got nowadays and the, the groups that we have in regard to skydiving are so out there and so helpful that those questions are going to get answered. And if you've got answers, get them to people that need them. And again, Tom, fantastic. I really appreciate your time, man. You have a great one. I know you're a busy guy, but we will talk again soon. Dean, always great to catch up with you. Take care. All right, that's it. Another edition of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void in the Can, brought to you, as always, by the greatest magazine in the known universe, Blue Skies Magazine. You're going to head to blueskiesmag.com where you can subscribe to the magazine, check out all the cool swag that they've got, and submit those photos and article ideas for you. Also, if you're looking to advertise, they are the way to go. 
Pussfoot.com. Also, if you want to know what it is, check it out. Type it in there. Pussfoot.com is a collective for all kinds of really cool extreme sports information, guides, the whole nine yards. Check it out. Pussfoot.com. For me, I am the fucking pilot. You know where to find me, thefuckingpilot.net. That's where you get the links to this and all my other podcasts, as well as both of those books. The, uh, fucking pilot book with blue skies magazine and the accidental stripper both available in digital and print form we'll see you next time